Well, I, I work in downtown Lincoln most days. I spend uh, much of my time downtown, and I love it. Um, I, I love being, so. I have my commute is fabulous. I have about a 0.9 mile commute from my home. Um, I can walk to several meeting places around downtown for, for meeting with people. There's just a general feeling of being in the middle of things downtown, which I appreciate. Recently, it's felt like being in the middle of construction. Um, but uh, often, it's kind of being in the middle of a lot of the fun stuff that happens in Lincoln, like the farmer's markets, or uh, sometimes they'll block off Fifth Street, and they'll bring in food trucks right when work's getting off, and we'll go have some, have some dinner down there. Sometimes I'll be walking downtown, and I will see a group of people just sort of assembled together, and I'll wonder, what's going on there? You know what I'm talking about? Like you drive by your kid's school on a Saturday afternoon and the parking lot is full and you think, I wonder what's going on there. Or the other night, it was our grand opening for the Axiom Youth Center on a Friday night and I was outside because there was almost no room inside and people were stopping at the red light on Lincoln Boulevard and shouting from their cars, hey, what's going on there? You're right. Um, last weekend... This is normal, right? This is normal for us to, to see a crowd and wonder what's happening and even to ask what's happening, whether it's downtown or it's at the park or it's at the Axiom. It's normal to wonder what's going on. What would be weird, what would be disappointing, in fact, is if people responded, those people who were gathered responded with, I don't know. I actually don't know what's going on here. We really don't know why we're here. Wouldn't that be ridiculous? We've been coming here for a long time. Uh, in fact, our parents came here. We like it, but we're not totally sure why we're here, actually, now that you ask. Uh, we would hope that whoever is gathered, that wherever crowds are gathered, people would be able to have a clear and strong sense as to why they are there and what it is that they're doing. So I'm starting a new series today called The Work of the Church. The Work of the Church. And basically, I want to spend some time together asking, what is this thing that we've gathered together to do? Why is it that we're here together this morning? Why do we do it? I'm confident that if somebody were to stick their head into the door in the back corner and ask somebody, what's going on in this room, that many of you would have a really strong and solid answer for the question, what's going on here? But my hope for this series is to deepen our understanding of what it is that we're doing here and why we're doing what we're doing. My hope is to uh, increase our sense of appreciation for why we're doing what we're doing the way we're doing it. And it's not this. This is not the goal. The goal is not to have more information in our heads about worship, but the point is ultimately that our experience of worship will grow and will expand as a result of a deeper sense of appreciation for what we're doing, that we'll be able to enter into it more wholly as a result of understanding it more thoroughly. Like, like me, you probably know somebody who's really into food. They just are really into food. Or maybe somebody who's really into coffee. Or maybe somebody, there we go, who's just really into, you know, brewing their own craft beverages. And what will often happen when you see or share an experience with these people is that most of us will experience a meal like at this level, but they will experience the meal like at this level. And they'll just, because they have a deeper sense of understanding. You know, it's just, oh, is it good coffee or bad coffee? I don't know, it's hot. But some people will be like, no, but I can, because they, they know more about it. And so their experience of the same experience that I'm having, or at least our experiences are about the same thing, but their experience is just way down here and it's just significant and meaningful and they're taking pictures of it and they're talking about it because it's so much richer and deeper. That's the same way with church, 
right? We can come in and we can have a, uh, you know, whatever kind of experience, or we can walk out of here and just, we can just be talking about it. We can just be shaped by it. We can be formed by it because there's different levels of appreciation. And frankly, there are different levels of entering into the same experience. This happens even in the Bible. I just remembered there are places where people are assembled in the Bible where they hear the voice of God and it said, and other people thought they heard thunder. It's like some people don't really get the full experience. Now, I want to move us into a deeper experience of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Because there are many ways you can approach worship. There are many ways you can approach this gathering and all different kinds of churches and all different kinds of people. Even Christians will support or will approach this gathering from a variety of perspectives. Let me just give you a couple of examples of that. Um, you can approach, yes, this is a worship gathering. That's, that's, that's fine. What's going, ultimately, this is a worship gathering. Here, here, are, um, here are a few approaches that are commonly taken to the worship gathering. One, kind of a cultural approach, which is to ask, how does this fit? How does what I'm doing here fit with the rest of my life? You, if you start here, you're asking essentially, what happens here that is relevant? That's the word that we often hear. Uh, with the rest of my life, does it make sense to me? And these are really, really good questions. Typically, we only ask these questions at a pretty shallow level, however, and we ask it kind of like in terms of look and feel first impression. This is a common perspective to take for Christians and for churches, for church leadership. This is the perspective that churches have taken for a long time that have pushed them to offer a variety of worship gatherings. You'll, talk, you'll hear about a contemporary service or different kinds of, and this is an, an effort to connect what's happening here to an already embraced culture so that it seems to make more sense. Most churches in our culture will use big screens. They'll use a lot of stage lighting. Nobody did this 20 or 30 years ago. At least very few people did. And the reason that it's changed is a cultural reason. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's cultural. Um, most churches in our culture don't use a lot of religious symbol. Most pastors in California dress pretty casually. Food is usually offered as part of worship. Coffee is a big deal in our culture. Surprise, surprise. Coffee is a big deal to churches. Um, even some churches have coffee shops in their church. That's crazy if you think about that, like from 50 years ago. Why are these churches building coffee shops? In, but it's a cultural reason. It's not bad, it's cultural. And this just makes sense if you're approaching church from a cultural perspective. If you're putting a premium on this gathering being a place that fits with the culture or that feels cool or at least doesn't feel awkward and lame. Right? Here's another approach that often the church takes to worship. Kind of a therapy perspective or a consumeristic, if I'm a little bit more critical, perspective. Um, the same kind of perspective you would take into another kind of helping service. We even use that word for this gathering often. I try not to, but we often do, right? This is a service, we say, a worship service. And so people ask at services of all kinds, they ask one question, how is this helping me? What am I getting out of this? That's the fundamental question you ask when you go to a service that is a therapeutic or a consumeristic kind of service. And the organizers of that gathering or of that service will ask the question, what is it that we're offering? What are the needs that we are meeting? And so when a church comes at worship from this perspective, the goal is to offer helpful services that will be consumed by people who need them. This is not bad, this is just, I'm just trying to highlight one of the ways we can approach. So the church becomes like a hospital, or the church becomes like a soup kitchen. 
And there's a clean and clear distinction, if you take this to the logical conclusion, between those who are there receiving and those who are there to give. So there are those who have and there are those who need. There are the givers and the takers. If you take it to its logical conclusion, it drives a pretty strong line between some people and others. Here's another way to think about worship is to think about it traditionally. So the therapeutic is how does this help? Another way to think about worship is to think about it traditionally, which is essentially to ask, how is this like whatever it is? How is this like what we've done in the past? How is this like what I'm used to from my childhood? I read this really interesting letter to a pastor. Um, and it was about the offensive, loud, irreverent music that was being allowed in the church and about how intolerable the new instrument was and how disrespectful to God it was and how it was nothing like it used to be. Now, what was remarkable about this letter is that it was written to a pastor in Scotland in the 16th century, and the instrument that was being derided, can you guess? Organ. The pipe organ, that's right. <laughs> Abomination, right? It, here's, here's the thing about about that it's common to approach worship from a traditional perspective and tradition is then held up as some sort of objective standard but tradition is never objective it's it's subjective in other words what was traditional for you was new and strange for somebody else at some time right, so those perspectives cultural social or therapeutic traditional they're really important perspectives to have they really are because you want worship to connect with culture you want worship to make a difference and to help people. You want worship to have some sense of connection with those who have gone before us. We want it to feel like home. If you stripped tradition away from my family's experiences, it wouldn't feel like my family anymore. So I'm not at all saying that traditional, the traditional perspective is somehow illegitimate. It's very important. Here are two perspectives that I think are even more important than those three. There's the historic perspective, which is to ask the question, how is this rooted in the pattern of the ancient Christian church? Are we essentially worshiping in a way that is in harmony with what Christians have done for thousands of years? Listen, if you're talking about worshiping whatever you want, then worship however you like. It doesn't matter. But if you're talking about worship that is Christian, then it's important to root that worship in the history of the Christian church, is it not? We are tied, rooted to something, because this isn't just a free-for-all, do-whatever-you-want. Now, you can worship like that, but you just can't worship Christ like that. You can worship something else however you want, but it's really difficult to say, I'm going to worship Christ in a way that is completely unrooted from the history of Christian worship. And then finally, and I think this is the most important perspective to take, is a theological perspective, which is essentially just saying, is this true? Is the worship gathering acknowledging, rehearsing, and celebrating the truth? So there are certainly more perspectives. Here are five, cultural, therapeutic, traditional, historic, theological. Here are the two that we would like to emphasize more highly than others. That last perspective, theological, is so much more important than we realize because what we worship shapes us so deeply. In fact, I would argue that nothing is more powerful in your life than what you worship. Nothing is. Nothing is more powerful, influential in your life than what you worship. And everybody worships something. 
Whether people are worshipers is not the question. Worship is happening all over the place, not just in the church. Worship happens all over the place. This is kind of interesting. What do you think is the biggest place of worship in Placer County? Any ideas? Not the biggest church. The biggest place of worship. Maybe the river? Thunder Valley? Valley? You might be right. Somebody said the mall. That's what I wrote. I kind of thought it might be the Galleria Mall. Right? There's a lot of adoration happening uh, at the mall. There's a lot of celebration happening at the river. There's a lot of devotion of resources happening (laughs) at Thunder Valley. Right? Um, Right? Yeah, there's all kinds of... you You can worship fashion. You can worship comfort. You can worship status. You can worship security. You can worship self. We're good at that. We're kind of bent in that direction. You can worship sports. Speaking of sports, last football season, according to the NFL, 202 million unique viewers tuned in for an average of 17 million viewers per game. So for the 17-game NFL season, it is the most watched show on television and has been for a very long time. That's a serious amount of devotion on the part of a serious amount of people. That is commitments that is being prioritized and it plays itself out in terms of how you organize your time, your weekend, what you say yes to, what you say no to. This is just really practical. This is how worship ultimately plays itself out on a practical level. What takes priority? What gets the, what gets the emotion? What, what receives the devotion? On one day, last football season, Fox televised the Eagles-Cowboys game and reported 32 million viewers of one game last Thanksgiving. As a comparison, just to give you an idea, according to multiple research organizations, the number of people attending or participating in Christian churches in America that same weekend was 52 million. So, think about that. 32 million people participating in one game And 52 million people participating, it took about 200,000 other events or church gatherings to gather uh, the 52 million. My point is that whether worship or devotion or committed celebration is happening is is not the question, nor is it really my concern. It's the content of worship that's the important thing. That's what I'm trying to say. It's the real issue. Not whether you're worshiping but what you're worshiping and how you're worshiping. That's the real issue. That's the question. For worship to be biblical worship, for worship to be Christian worship, the content of worship, in other words, what we do in worship, must be the story of God's rescue and redemption. The story of God's rescue and redemption. Let's look at Exodus 24. This is the first recorded meeting between people and God. A group of people, an assembly and God. Exodus 24. Let me give you a little background. It's on page uh, 55 if you received a Bible from the ushers, which by the way, you're welcome to keep if you don't have one. Here's a little background just to kind of place you in the, in the, story, in the story, in the history. The Hebrew people, which is a race, has been in slavery to Egypt for 400 plus years under the leadership of a man named Moses God frees them from slavery. 
The, the pinnacle of the event is they leave Egypt out into the desert. They run up against an ocean. God separates the waters. The, the Hebrew people, now known as the Jews, they go through. The waters close in on the Egyptian army, and the Hebrews are free for the first time in 400 years. Three months later, they all go camping at the bottom of a mountain. There's about a million of them, they say. And during the camp out, God calls Moses, the leader, to come to the top of the mountain. He's there for a while. He comes back down with Ten Commandments. You've probably heard of them. He teaches the Ten Commandments to the people as well as a bunch of other information that he receives from God. And then this happens. Verse 1 of chapter 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord. You and Aaron, that's his brother, Nadab and Abihu, these are priests, and 70 other of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went up and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 Hebrew tribes. Verse 5. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrifices of young bulls and fellowship offerings to the Lord. They're like killing animals as an act of worship. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. The other half he splashed against the altar... Then he took the book of the covenant, this is what he's just written, and he read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant, that the, or the promise, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like pavement made of lip lapsus lazuli. Actually, my other translation said sapphire, I think. Anyway, some strange thing, some pavement under his feet, and, and, and bright blue is the sky. Pretty weird, huh? Pretty strange. Wild. Sounds like a different kind of worship, very unlike modern worship. But this record of this worship gathering is really important because it contains the most basic structural elements of a meeting between God and his people. I think this is fascinating. I know this is a bit of a, a beginning to a, a series that will get more specific, but stick, run with this. Here we have this meeting. Here we have this story that reveals basic structural elements of what it takes to have a meeting with God as a group of people. I think it's fascinating. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and even into the New Testament, Judaic worship and Christian worship changes and it grows, but these basic structures remain. Here they are. Let me walk through them really quickly. Here's the basic elements of a public meeting between God and people. Number one, notice that God calls the meeting. It's God who calls the people out of Israel, I mean, people of Israel out of slavery. It's God who calls the people to assemble at the base of the mountain. It's God who calls them to worship. Right? So it's God's rescuing act that enables them to be free to worship in the first place. It is God's direction that calls them to assemble in a local, specific place. Call it Mount Sinai or Foskett Ranch Elementary. Right? And it is God's, the meeting with God is done in response to God's call itself. 
And this is so important that when we come to worship, we are coming to a meeting, friends, that God set up. This, this can be so easy to just forget as you're driving down the street and your kids are chattering and all the stuff's going on and what are we going to do about that invitation to dinner tomorrow night? We're coming to a meeting that God has set up, right? God made the phone call. God sent the email, meet me here Sunday morning. We need to enter in with that basic structural element in mind that we are responding to an invitation from God. That's ultimately, or at least initially, what this is about. I had about 15 meetings last week. Some I initiated, some were initiated by others. When I sit down to a meeting, which I call, I bring the agenda. I start talking. When I sit down with a meeting with you and you have initiated that meeting, I sit down and I wait. What are we going to talk about? What do you want to, right? I wait for you to set the initiative or set the agenda because you've called the meeting. I've come to hear what you have to say. This is always true in Christian worship. It can be easy to forget, but God has called this meeting. Secondly, the people participate. Did you notice that God arranges all these different people in different roles and different responsibilities in that story in Exodus? Different people have, there's even boundaries. Some people can only do certain things. But the point is that everybody participates. The first worship gathering is not leader audience. And boy, we fight against this in our culture because our whole culture is speaker audience, singer audience, teacher audience. But participation is a fundamental basic element of worship. Everyone's active. Everyone participates in worship that is biblical, right? Three, the meeting between God and people centers around the proclamation of the word. This is why they have the meeting. This is why they have the meeting, to hear the word of God. God has something to say. God, why did you call this meeting? Because I have something to say to you. So I'm going to call it, you come and participate, and I'm going to deliver, I don't mean I, I'm speaking as though I'm God, God is going to deliver his word. That's the substance God speaks. God will make his will known. And fourth, the people listen. The people receive. Basic to worship of God is the proclamation of the word and the receiving and response to the word. People receive the word. People embrace the word. People submit to the word. When Moses told the people all the God's words and laws, they responded with one voice, is what we just read. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. That's in there twice in a story of eight verses. This is important. A person can observe. You're welcome to observe here. From the very beginning, we said we want to be a church where people can go at their own pace and just observe. People can just watch. People can just listen. And you're totally fine if that's where you are today. But understand that, that it does not become worship until you intentionally take it beyond I'm observing and I'm listening to I am coming with the intention to hear and to respond. Now we're talking about worship, right? That's the difference. I go to seminars sometimes. I sit in on classes and I'm just there to listen and observe, maybe pick up some information. Like, categorically different from the approach to something like this where I come and I'm thinking I don't even know what God's gonna say I don't even know what God's gonna say that's not the point the point is I am coming with the intent to listen to what God says hear what God says and with the intent to follow through on what God says follow now we're talking about worship 
right? God speaks and we embrace what he says. We call that worship, right? The, the, the basic element of worship is this continual renewal of commitment of relationship, which is you speak and I'll do what you say, right? And then finally, the original meeting between God and people climax with this dramatic symbol of ratification. There's this act that seals the deal. Initially, through the Old Testament, the climax of the worship was this sacrifice of an animal, right? They, they're, they're killing and cutting up cows and sheep and stuff like that. And it is a demonstration of the renewed relationship between God and people. These, all these Old Testament sacrifices, in fact, the, all the Old Testament points ultimately to Jesus. And so all of these, the sacrificial system is pointing us ultimately to the sacrifice of Jesus. And since Jesus' death and resurrection, the climax of Christian worship has been the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. And that connection between a dying cow and bread and wine might seem kind of weird and distant to you, but understand that it is made very clearly in Scripture. Let me just show you one thing. This is interesting to me. <clears throat> this is what Moses says. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Now, hopefully, those words sound pretty familiar to you if you've been part of this community for a while, right? Because they're very similar to the words that are recorded in the gospel that Jesus himself says, and we pray this every single Sunday together. After supper, Jesus took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, drink this, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you do this, do this for the remembrance of me. So Jesus himself makes this connection between the historic Old Testament sacrificial system, his own death for us, and the celebration, and ultimately the act of ratifying or accepting and remembering that very act itself. So the pinnacle of our worship is no longer being sprinkled with blood from cows. It's the receiving of the bread and the cup as the body and blood of Jesus given for us so that we may have freedom and we may have life. Friends, the central event of the Old Testament is the Exodus, the event which freed the people of God from slavery. And the central event of the New Testament is the cross of Jesus, the event which freed the people of God and the people of the whole world from sin itself. And worship in both the Old and the New Testament is about celebrating and praising God for the event that brought us out of slavery to sin and into new and full life, the freedom of life itself. So when we gather together on Sunday mornings, yes, we gather to encourage each other. That's part of worship. And yes, we gather to help one another out. That can be part of worship. And we try to apply the teachings of Jesus in really practical ways to our life, and that's part of worship. But ultimately, we gather to adore Jesus. That is ultimately why we gather. We come together to remember the act that brought our freedom and to praise God for that, to use the word to worship God for that. We gather in response to God's invitation to celebrate and to praise God for the saving event of Christ's death and the resurrection and the gift of a restored relationship between us and with 
with God. So what's going on here? It's the work of the church. What's going on here? The work of the church, it's so basic and so often, this is, these are the things we forget, it's the basic things, right? It's, it's so basic, but we can't, we can't let it um, slip our minds. We can't overlook it. That fundamentally, basically, why did you go to church this morning? Well, I went to worship Jesus, right? That's why I went. What's going on here? It's a worship gathering. These people are gathering first and foremost to worship God. Amen? Amen. May God bless our gatherings to be good and right and helpful and honoring to him. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these, those who have gathered to be part of this community, this group of folks who is sharing life and discovering you together. When we gather, I pray that any kind of dullness, any kind of routine that is negative in its connotation, any kind of, um, I don't know, distraction could be, could be pressed out to the side and that we could have such a deep sense of appreciation for what this is, that it would just be full of life over and over and over again. And ultimately, that we would do as we are called to do, and that is to respond to what you've done to us, for us, in, in gratitude. Thank you, Lord, for the church. May we be the church and do the work of the church well in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.